You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Giorgio Gali. He is the design director at Timex, um, and he's based out of Milan, which is where he spent his formative years, and, and, and we'll talk to him about that. Giorgio, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Uh, hello. <laughs> uh, Giorgio is shy, but he's impressive. Uh, yeah. he, he understands the magnitude of what he's doing. He is making beautiful objects uh, for people to wear and spend money on. And there's, that's, that's not easy to do. Um, where is it that you get your humility from, whereas many of your colleagues obviously haven't recognized the value in that? No, I mean, of course, uh, you know, everyone has his own ego. So, but at the same time, you know, I, I find this is a waste of time. So I really like to focus on what I'm doing and doing it <laughs> in the best way. Uh, and of course, uh, I like to be recognized for this, but at the same time, as I said before, I like to do the things in the best way, and I don't have really much time actually to think about anything in regards of you know just show off and things. So I'm really busy. So that's that's one of the reasons as well. I start from nothing basically, and I just build everything. And and that's the thing. You're you're very prolific. You've done many things. I, I sort of want to start a little bit at the beginning because unlike many watch designers today, you have spent uh, a large part of your career designing watches. And today, you know, watch design is taught, but it's unbelievably boutique. Um, try to tell people how you sort of became a watch designer and, and some of the key steps along the journey and, and because that's not an easy profession. No, I actually wasn't planning to be just a watch designer, which I end up in these days, because um, I'm, now I'm almost 100% on, 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 as a watch designer. So I started from, uh, actually I started from graphic design as a first, uh, first professional, uh, let's say, debut. So, and, uh, and then I started to design, to, to learn design, actually... Uh, working on it, not really studying. I really, I did study actually graphic design, and you know, and my my degrees in, in in graphic design. So, and I start to do to do industrial design and learn industrial design actually on on the field. So my initial career, actually, I went to the states when I was really young to see and learn as much as I could, and uh, and then when I went back. I started my own company and focusing on corporate identity as a first, you know, initial, uh, let's say, logos and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, logos, exactly. So I did actually yeah. quite big companies um, in Europe. So, and it's still actually one of my passion, corporate identity and logos. So and then, uh, and then, you know, adding other section of uh, it's an offering to my design studio. We start to design products for several brands and I had clients uh, basically all over the world. Mainly, mainly actually, not really in Italy, but mainly in, in Asia or US. So I started to be quite in, an international um, 
designer. So anyway, but before that, um, and or parallel to that, I was uh, also, I became actually creative director of Swatch watches. So which was actually my initial, let's say, debut on, on watches. That was that so, was like in the early 90s, right? Early 90s, exactly. So basically, yeah. just right after I opened my, my design boutique shop, I started to consult the Swatch for two years. And uh, even that, actually, it was almost a full-time. At one point, it was really full-time. Until it, I actually decided to move on and and focus on my, my career as a designer. And I started to work for other watch brands at the same time. So, so uh, like Movado or uh, Ebel, uh, I worked for, uh, you know, I, I started to work for Citizen uh, Projects and also Seiko. So really, and Timeless, of course, Timeless Group. Um, so then parallel, parallel, you know, the two things that went along together and at the same time, at that time, watches was only like 20% of my business. And now actually it's uh, 95%. I'm still consulting. So actually I'm still, uh, not a Timex employee. I'm a creative director, design director, but not uh, an employee of Timex. So, and um, so anyway, the, the watch part grew and my involvement with Timex started to actually expand and I really love the brand. So actually I was I started to work on other brands of the group before I ended up actually working also on a Timex uh, product, which was my, actually my goal to get to really rejuvenate and refresh the brand, which I thought was great, had great potential. So... And it pushed in that direction. So I really actually like I did that. So I, at one point, you know, my design office uh, was bought by Timex, and you know, right now we uh, we are almost one hundred percent focusing on their products and their brands. I want to say sort of how interesting it is. It's very sort of um, uh, macho that you have this email address, which is your design studio versus Timex one. And yeah, you have this very special relationship. And I think there's a lot of designers out there that would feel that your sort of position is ideal. Yes, you work primarily for someone, but you still get to be positioned as an individual, um, a little bit of self-promotion, stuff like that. I mean, just right now, you know, you, you in a sense are, of course, I'm interviewing you, but you're talking a little bit on behalf of Timex. That's a really great position, you know, for a lot of designers. Um, do a lot of designers go to you and say, "Hey, Giorgio, how can I get to sort of where you are?" Even I know a lot of luck and circumstance, and of course, hard work is part of it. Um, it's it's hard to find all the same opportunities. But do people come up to you and say, "How do I how do I get to where you are?" Well, yeah, you know, it happens. You know, of course, uh, for me, it came natural the fact that uh, Timex uh, we develop a great relationship with, uh, you know, with the people that worked in Timex at that time, or is still, someone is still working there, and I still, with the current management, having a great relationship. So, um, but, you know, with my clients in general, and even in the past, a lot of clients, we always had a kind of relationship very, very close, because I think you need to, to develop a certain confidence, you know, with the designer that has has to develop a vision for the for the brand. If you start to cut a little piece, then you lose, you know, the focus and and you know, the, the and the fact that the brand needs a certain support. It's uh, it's uh, it, it absolutely 
critical. And the fact that actually I'm an external in some way, in some way, even though I'm a full-time almost, um, it's just because I always wanted to be independent, you know, in some way. So I don't want to yeah. be a corporate man. So I, and I think for me, creating terms of creativity, it's important. You have an independence that is great. You know, you sort of, in some ways, have the best of both worlds of being with this big corporate company that has all these resources, but you still get to, you know, set your own hours a little bit. Like, it's kind of yeah. a special thing. Yeah, but for a designer, for a creative person, I think that's essential, at least for me, because otherwise you'll be uh, influenced by, you know, the, I don't want to do any corporate politics. That's that's one of the things. And there's no, yeah. no way that doesn't happen, you know. And there's no shortage of it in the watch industry, right? I mean, remember, I mean, Basel World, may it rest in peace, may it be resurrected, I don't know. But you remember the gossip that we, you would hear, like just walking through the halls, it was um, it was like going through the the halls at a high school or something like that. It was hilarious. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, it's hilarious. It's still happening, you know, in a way, but not not, not that visible in a sense. But yeah. definitely, it's a small world anyway. I think, like you, I've always been in it for the product, right? It's all about. It's always been about the watches, and yeah, there needs to be these people to make watches and sell watches and you know ship watches and new customer service and sales, but. You know, that's the funny thing about this industry. Very few people are here because of the product. And you, you, I think, genuinely started to love watches early on in your design career. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I really started to learn and to understand watches, the watch industry working enough for it. And it's, uh, and it's a lot that grow, you know, and you're still learning a lot, actually. It's still, uh, sometimes... Uh, I feel uh, I don't know enough, you know, or I hear something I never heard before, which is unusual. You know, it's more than 21, actually. Everyone I've ever met who spent time at the Swatch group, and you were at Swatch, has told me that it's a, it was a very transformative experience. Uh, you were there at a time where Hayek Senior, of course, was very, very active and things like that. What did you learn from, from your time, I think it was a couple of years, at Swatch? No, you know, first of all, I almost didn't know anything about watches, watches and, what, and how to make watches. So it was a, a complete new experience for me. And I opened my mind to the, uh, at every level, you know, in terms of trying to get as much as possible I could to fulfill, you know, what they needed because, you know, what was a big brand that needed some, you know, expertise and at the same time some fresh new blood. So I was trying to bring that as a young designer, I was 20, 23, something like that. So uh, at the same time, of course, uh, I, I was paying very much attention to every single thing and, and listening to all the people inside the company that had uh, like a long experience. And the learning process uh, was pretty fast, but at the same time, I really endless. So it was uh, forming my view on watches, you know, uh, and it would change throughout the years, of course. But in the beginning, not knowing anything or not knowing too much about some of the brands and see how much, you know, behind those brands there is in terms of history, you know, technicality, research. I mean, it's what you do, really taking research and materials and the way to do how to do things. That was an incredible uh, experience, you know. Um, and I just left at one point just because I saw I could do, I could expand my, my career into many different 
direction that I was actually looking at in order to, you know, increase my competence. And I, th I think I could have stayed there longer, but at the same time, you know, uh, I'm, I'm shy, but I'm still ambitious, you know, to learn more <laughs> things. And I was getting also yeah. a lot of projects on the other side of my, let's say, business, you know, corporate identities and, and products. Uh, I could not just stay, stay there and repeat, you know, what I was doing for the last two years. So anyway, the, the, I, I kept, actually I kept learning. I went to see a lot of factories yeah, around the world you know, of watches, you know, for, you know, for Seiko cities and uh, visited, you know, their factory in, uh, in Japan. It was incredible, you know. So that was a, an additional le learning of different, uh, different, uh, let's say, different culture, you know, Swiss is something, you know, the Asian are absolutely different, you know, the, the way they think, the way they, they do things. So for me, it was just incredible. Enriching. A lot of people don't get that, that depending on where a watch company is based, everything from the product to the culture, it's all very, very different. And Italian, Swiss, German, Japanese, Chinese, it's all incredibly different from one another. It really is. Yeah, it is actually. In fact, when I'm designing a product right now for different brands, you know, we look at different markets uh, and we look at different markets uh, thinking product for, you know, those markets. Now it's actually getting even more and more fragmented, I have to say, more than I know this. In reality, oh, yeah, there is a global view, but still very much <laughs> strong, you know, the way, you know, other people look at watches, you know, Asians, of course, it also depends on the sizes and so on, but, but still the, 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 the look and the, the taste, you know, what they like the most, you know, it's so different, you know, even more and more. I don't know why, but it's still very strong, the difference between uh, continents. Nation, you know. I, I, I would try to study this uh, from, from afar myself. Now, I just want to go back to Swatch for a second because mm -hmm. when you were there, the company was pretty young. You know, this is a company that started like, you know, basically in the mid 80s. I don't remember the exact year, but it was still a pretty young company. Um, you know, did it have sort of a startup like atmosphere? Did they already seem to know what they were doing? Because they were basically, uh, it was a pop culture brand still at the time. And the 80s was just so popular for these trendy watches. It was, like, you know, like great, great position for you all about design and friendliness and, and appeal wasn't really about new, new, uh, you know, new watchmaking features and things like that. You know, talk a little bit about sort of the energy and what they were looking for. Well, it wasn't that small, actually, when I started, because we were already quite successful. Um, it was in, in between a transition from a design office based in Switzerland to, you know, another one in, uh, in, uh, actually in Milan, because they originally started to look into uh, a new designer, which was picked, it was Matteo Thun, it was actually a designer in Milano that I worked with. And so, and he and I actually started to work on, on Swatch together. And then, and then they opened the design lab, you know, Swatch in Milan, based on the success of our work. And then I became creative director of the lab and the Swatch creativity uh, at that point. So uh, so it, at that time, they were very successful. I think they built, you know, quite, it was already quite big uh, company. Of course, the Swatch Group was at that time SMH. 
uh, it was a big company, so they, they really had great support and great distribution around the world. So, so for me, being completely new at that kind of business for me was big. No, it was, I was always looked to the big picture in that was a, already an established uh, organization. And uh, but the, the, as you said, actually the atmosphere was very you know vibrant. So the vibe for me to, that I got from these people with a great enthusiasm, especially you know from the headquarters, uh, you know, brought, you know it really gave me a lot of energy to learn and, and trying to express you know different design view on what they were doing at, at that time. And uh, and actually the nineties was uh, one of the high the peak of uh, success, the beginning of the peak of the success. So those two years when I was working in the in the, in the first watch, I mean it was so successful. And I got a few articles on magazine that you know was talking about me. So I became I became I started to get calls from you know people I never you know seen for years. Um, <laughs> it, it was really successful, great uh, response. So we come to hear that actually on my on my skin. What what was trendy at the time? You know, it's always um, such an important part of a watch designer's job to think about what's what's up and coming, colors, sizes, materials, whatever. In the in the early nineties, late eighties, whatever. Like, what was what was trendy? It was you know we were working in teams. Each collection had a certain uh, theme, so we was trying to expand each of the collection into something that created a kind of contest around each each theme. It wasn't just the watch the cover. So the trend, of course, was color. It was very colorful, but also you needed to give a story to the watch, not just you know a new graphics on top of it. You know the fact that it kept. Watch successful because we were building specific stories and a contest around each collection uh, that you know communicate to to the consumer in a way they're they were understanding better why you know that we had those designs and top you know just a- any specific examples because again I'm just I don't know that too many people can remember that time like any colors or th- specific themes that were fun well you know the colors in the 90s uh, late 80s uh, were quite quite bright so but so as I said you know, when we started also to design the, the divers the scuba diver that we launched that time uh, we based everything on uh, Let's say travel, uh, you know, uh, exotic places. So colors and contrast uh, between some of the graphics uh, that they were in use on watches in those days. So it kind of yeah. seems that over the last twenty or maybe even thirty years, most of the same themes have been, you know, recycled a lot in the watch industry, yeah. save for the introduction of you know, some new materials and things like that. But outside of materials, it seems like it's basically been the same themes, right? It is, yeah. It, it was the beginning. The beginning of giving uh, the contents to, you know, to uh, an object that never had that kind of, uh, you know, 
selling point and then uh, evolved. Uh, still today, actually, uh, even in Timex, we, we build collection based on uh, themes and themes and ideas and contests created like the environment, the correct environment to explain uh, why we had that collection. So we and evolved, of course, uh, evolving in size, in colors, and material, uh, and so on. So, so many things, sizes. Are there themes you like better than others, or can you just design around any theme? They could just tell you whatever, and you can design, or do you prefer certain types of themes that are your favorites? You know, uh, you, you, you create a path. You know? A path uh, gives you the possibility to add things, you know, add ideas. But you need to have like, the correct have where you can attach different different ideas. So, uh, of course, uh, I started to, with my colleagues, to expand the history of Panex and refresh that, you know, and on top of it, you know, build a collection based on their histories and picking things from the past, but also evolving into something different and new. Uh, but it remained to me very strange. Everything was based on the U.S. heritage. So that was actually my goal to really take back, you know, Timex to, to, to the, you know, to some, some sort of uh, American icon. Now, that's, that's interesting. And we've talked about this in the past, but you as an Italian person rediscovering American heritage is actually a very good idea once you understand it, but from an, sort of an initial reaction, it's like, whoa, 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 what business does he? I, again, and, and if you know design, you recognize that having that third-party perspective can allow the, the truly iconic elements to show. It's sort of almost too personal if it's your own culture, but um, you, you agree that's kind of ironic, right? Yeah, but at the same time, you know, I, I think uh, as a designer, you have to develop you know, that kind of sensibility that I, let you understand what other culture are looking at uh, things. And then uh, you need to be prepared of interpret things. And in some way, uh, I think I, being from outside, I, I know the, I, I have more sensibility to what I think is the American culture, you know? Sometimes the same things probably for someone from outside Italy, that is more sensitivity. I don't know. But anyway, as a designer, uh, I don't feel uh, to belong to a specific country, to be, to be honest with you. I'm really open to other culture. So, and then uh, and that, that fact that we open our mind to different culture and we adapt to, you know, on what to do, I think it's absolutely critical and it's very important for, for a designer. You're seeing that sort of being a designer is a very maybe reductionist way of looking at the world, whereas you see different cultures, you can boil them down to key things they're no, known for, certain types of attributes that, that are visual, that can be expressed from a design perspective. Uh, you sort of know how to boil things down to their elements, and then being a trained designer, you know, to create an attractive composition to express that theme. Is, is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah, uh, you know... You have to, as a designer, you have to be pragmatic also at the same time. So you need to look at things, you know, you're, you're providing a service and you have to learn and understand what that company needs from you. 
So I cannot just sit as, you know, be in Italian to do things that are in a kind of way. No, I actually need to understand what, you know, that company needs. And to do that, studying what, you know, are where I should place or position certain things, certain ideas and product and whatever we, we develop. So I, that's why I don't think it's, a, I think that's one of the role of a designer to be able to really express that and, and bring professionality, uh, being, you know, pragmatic over what the company is and trying to get from the DNA of the company, you know, Okay, so, you, I mean, you're right. It is pragmatic to make the client happy, but that's hard to do. And, and this is, you know, you talk about it like it's pretty easy, but the reality is that most designers do what they like, which isn't necessarily what the client wants. And to do your job correctly, to get paid, you have to make the client happy, not just make something nice. What is, you know, it, what, is this, what is the sort of steps to do that? You obviously have a good skill at that because you spend a lot of time designing for other very important fashion brands or working with them to make a watch version, you know, of them. Lots of, you know, lots of fashion. I just got an email today from Tom Ford watches that, you know, you're, you're, you are responsible for that. Um, you know, so what is, what is the trick to sort of making these clients happy who are notoriously finicky? Um, yeah, in fact, not <laughs> everything I design, it's represent my, my, let's say my, Taste, but I understand that the fact that I need to provide, you know, a service trying to identify myself or what, how I think with, you know, with that specific brand, collect what, you know, is their ideas and trying to, you know, to do things that respect in some way what I think is correct for them to teach and to provide, you know, something that really fits their uh, their brand identity you know you can't do the same things what you do it for uh, Ferragamo or you do it for for Adidas you know they are two, two different brands so you really need to take their identity and evolve and try to because you know anyway they're coming from a different business so watch watch is something else you know? so my side is like to make a real watch that represent the brand but it's still a watch. So my contribution is to drive the client in the right direction, of course, uh, keeping their uh, identity. And also, it's, it's not easy. You know, it's, it's difficult to find. Uh, I, I know. I know. That's, that's I'm trying to unravel the process here, not give away the secret sauce. Okay. So let's say a client, Ferragamo. Let's say they're a yeah. brand new client. They're not a brand new client, Devere's, but let's say they were. No. Yeah. And they say, okay, Giorgio, Go ahead, make the beautiful watch collection. You have a few months. We can't wait to see what you come up with. What's the first thing you do that you look at to try to get a sense of their brand identity? Do you walk into a store? Do you ask them for catalogs? How do you get a sense of their flavor? Well, first of all, yeah, I analyze their product. Uh, I, I look at their history, you know, especially specifically if I got a long history and, and a long history in terms of innovation. So you're trying to combine their view of innovation and design and flair to, to the watch. So it's not, it's easy at words, you know, it's easy then to translate. So, and through, it, it takes a little, sometimes actually, to get to the right path to a brand. So not everything we have done actually in Ferragamo at the beginning was correct. So 
I have to say, I have to admit that it, it took a little long, but now we actually are in the right direction. But, you know, and the, and the brain itself is evolving. So we need to <laughs> follow the, what they're doing and trying to adapt yourself also to what, you know, the brain is, is moving to. Uh, you know, some of the brands, they change creative director. So and the new creative director comes in has different ideas. Uh, and it, you know, so that's, uh, that's sort of things is get to balance, uh, your creativity toward their creativity, their brands, their DNA. So there are a lot of things that they have to make happen in the sales team and so we have to make everybody happy. It's not that it's, it's, it, And you said you wanted to avoid politics. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my, my job in terms of design, trying to be free in terms of mine. I'm not playing games, let's put it these ways, but I'm trying to show what I think is correct. And sometimes it's successful, sometimes it's not, you're not convincing. So happens that you know, it takes longer to get to a certain point because there is no clear view from both sides, not, not just one side. So, but uh, maybe, maybe it's your patience because again, you're speaking about so humbly, but you literally deal with some of the most prima donna personalities in the world of fashion and they are notoriously difficult. They don't know what they want. They want you to impress them. They want to feel like they're tastemakers. They're moody. I mean, I'm sure you've had some hilarious meetings, you know, in the afternoons in Milan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had some interesting meetings, uh, but I to say, <laughs> but you know, but it, you know, I, I think it, it, then it start to develop great relationships, and um, they start to know you. So they, there is a mutual uh, trust. So we've done. We actually we had uh, we developed actually great relationship over the years with some of the some of the brands, uh, and, and now things are actually much, much more smooth. But of course, it takes some time. But so far, you know, the relationship is good. Maybe I'm very diplomatic, but at some time, uh, we never really had a big fight. Let's put it this way. Well, I mean, that's the thing. There can be some big arguments, but at the end of the day, it sounds like there's a lot of mutual respect both ways. Yeah, that's important. And this is, I'm trying to provide the, you know, the most professional, uh, you know, design or most professional way of working as much as possible. So, um, in fact, I'm very, very picky the way I'm actually presenting things. So I think it's, that's why it's very important. How you present, how to explain, how you get to, and you know, convince a client that that's the right thing. And we don't have much time. That's the difficult part to do, to make this process it's not like you have the entire year. Some of, some of the high-end brands and watches, they take like a year to develop, you know, two hands and one dial. And we do actually, we actually design a lot of watches throughout the year. Yeah, and your, your I'm, output I'm, is wild. Wild output. Yeah, yeah. I have like uh, 11 brands so far. <laughs> what is it about Milan? Milan is a city that I was fortunate enough to spend some time in. It's, it's a hub of manufacturing in Italy. It's a fashion hub. It seems like there's this combination of worlds of manufacturing and design there. Tell, tell, tell a little bit of, you know, why you think Milan is as prolific as a design city center um, compared to so many other places in the world, especially even in Europe. Well, historically, uh, and I think 
the big contribution of today is because we have a lot of company in that they uh, they develop historically the, the design. So there is a any great support from the industry of creativity and, and design. So it all started from there. And you know, when you have you know a company that or industries that are providing work to designers, then they start to create a community and then expand and you know becoming more and more uh, advanced. If you look to the to the furniture industry, the design, the product industry. In Milano, in Milano especially, in Italy, but specifically in Milano, uh, there is a great, uh, some of the greatest company, you know, of lights, you know, Artemide or you know, Floss or, you know, B&B for the furniture. So there's Casino, there's like incredible company that always gave priority to the design since, uh, you know, the 50s and 60s and even earlier. So that's that was the biggest contribution to get, you know, the, the designer, you know, to develop their community and expand. So it's not just because in Milano is great creativity, I think attracts a lot of creative people because it's uh, the industry provide uh, enough work. So and then started from there, and now it's you know worldwide, um, let's say hub for for design. Okay, and that the, makes the, sense. I, I, I liked it there. Yeah, the creativity you know you can feel everywhere right now. Almost uh, there is so much, and there is so much to learn from different designers. There is it's a community, so you know almost everyone. So that's uh, it gives it even more breed to what you know. Uh, it's your profession, and then of course the, the fashion industry helps that to expand even more. So now fashion industry and design are more, very much you know involved together to, for the same cause. So yeah, I think the, the fashion industry really helps to take off the more. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch store. Right now, the Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. I was thinking about a few other things uh, to sort of relate to this. Because again, you know, you and I have both traveled. And, you know, again, different cities are good at different things. And small differences from city to city can have a big impact on the culture. In Milan, there's a lot of energy. People are always rushing to go someplace. A lot of things going all the time. And I think that there's, you know, two types of major European cities. There's sort of the energetic ones and there's the sleepy ones. And Italy has both. Italy has arguably sleepier areas and more high energy areas. But there's a 
there's a competition uh, to succeed in Milan. There's a desire to get things done. There's a, a sense of urgency that I think is interesting. And I feel that there's this sort of can-do attitude there that you just don't have in a lot of cities. Like Switzerland, for example, everything takes so much time. Everything takes forever. Um, it sort of feels that, you know, human human desire and, and effort is enough to get things done in, in places like Milan, you know? Yeah, it's true. I think what you said is absolutely correct. Uh, in fact, Milan is, is you know, for Italy, it's like the, the engine of Italy. So everything pretty much efficient, you know, think people that run, not like walk around because <laughs> it's a kind of <laughs> attitude. It's true. So yeah. in, uh, even myself, you know, when I prepare things, I'm trying to do things not as fast as possible, but, you know, with a, as much as effort to get things done as quickly as, uh, as possible because, you know, without losing of course, the sensibility and the precision, you know, precise, work fast, I mean, work a lot. So we have a work habit, which is quite unusual for the entire country, and it's quite strong in Europe as well. So, well, you, you tend to have that in manufacturing hubs. You know, you have that a lot in Asia, and Asia tends to have a lot of that same energy. So I think it's just, mm -hmm. you know, places where there's factories and people designing and people making things, you just... There's such a confluence of different elements of culture and industry that it means that so much is possible. You can do it right there, you know, and I think that's that has a lot to do with it. Well, yeah, you know, the fact that we have contacts, direct contact with, you know, some of the suppliers, some of the big manufacturers uh, helps to develop, you know, product in a faster way because then you can solve problem very quickly, not through, like, long conversation. There's absolutely short it's a uh, between the product designer and the designer and the company. There's no too much around. You know, it's mostly the designer and the owner of the company yeah. working together. And those are the entrepreneur has a great sensibility over design. That's typical, you know, around the, the Italian industry, the Milanese industry. That helps to speed up. So there's no marketing between, there's much more relationship between the, between the owner of the company and the designer that helps things move it faster. And uh, this is actually one of the, one of the success story of the entire Milanese design. I mean, there's just so much great stuff that comes out of there. I'm going to ask an entirely different question now. Now, you've been designing watches long enough that you've experienced the transition from a world which everyone sort of needs a watch to a world where uh, watches are optional, to a world where uh, the traditional watch has some competition in the same space with smartwatches. Talk a little bit about the world sort of, uh, you know, before watches became a little bit more threatened and, and the world after. Of course, watches are still selling very big, but they're no longer a sort of necessary mainstream good, you know, maybe like, a, like an automobile might be. Um, what, what was that transition like for you? And when did you sort of personally experienced the change from one era to another? I think before the, you know, the smart watches came in, uh, they changed a few things around. The watch industry was really moving, you know, ahead, you know, in a different direction since the, you know, the classic way of making watches. So the fashion watches uh, the started in the 80s, early 80s, uh, mid 80s, uh, already gave a different post to the, to the industry. 
to look into different areas just um, you know just into instrument of time so they were fashion items and still and becoming more and more fashion items uh accessories um so that evolved you know and still in a way so they're even more and more accessory in a certain way but at the same time you know the traditional watchmaking it's uh it's it's uh, reinforcing their their values their, their uh, but looking at things in a, in a more uh, open way so they're looking to different materials different uh, uh, way of uh, uh, propose themselves you know if you look what Hublot is doing on the market you know how they they evolve from a traditional watch brand to a very much you know advanced in terms of uh, uh, they propose their their creativity you know creativity of others also into their product you know fashion watch fashion designers or whatever so that they were this this still moving to and this is actually moving the watch industry um, toward new way of looking at you know at the product not necessarily telling you the time but you know being just accessories so and the, the smart watches, it did affect actually the, the watch industry at the beginning, but at the same time, they're really taking two completely different paths, uh, maintaining alive actually the watch industry. I mean, we had actually a great year for our fashion brands, so which means there's still big room for, uh, for the traditional way of doing watches. I'm quite optimistic. I mean, you have all these analysts. You have all mm-hmm. these analysts who for 20 years now have been predicted the demise of the watch industry. And I remember seeing articles in the early 2000s that say things like, babies born today will not know what a wristwatch is. And you know that turned, about, uh, turned out to be so wrong. <laughs> in fact, yeah. babies born then probably knew more than babies born 10 years earlier about wristwatches. Um, <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's interesting that, that you know the analysts have never really been able to do, they've never really been able to predict success a successful time priest product is oftentimes unpredictable. And that, you know, that sort of upsets a lot of sort of the financial people who hold a lot of the strings. What do you as a designer say to the managers that want to know things like, well, how many units will we sell? Or can you promise it'll do well? Like, what is your response to people that want to have you uh, powered by a crystal ball? Well, what I learned in the watch industry, it's impossible to predict, as you said. Anything, you know, it's success, sometimes it's successful, something you never thought would be, would have been successful. And you fail with something you really believe on it. You know, you, you thought it was actually a great product. You know, it just coming at the right time or the right moment, the right style, really changed things dramatically. And so I, I, I really don't know what to say when I ask that. I'm trying to provide as much as possible my vision, my view, but I, I think it's part of the sensitivity to develop while you're working on it in the industry. You, you feel the market, you feel, uh, you know, you catch what, you know, are the, um, and th- 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 certain things actually are almost intangible. You know, we really feel it inside. This is the way to do it. I think that's a good, correct. I don't know how to explain that sometimes, but I feel that's the correct way. But at the same time, I know it's impossible to predict success for a product. What you can do, 
especially working on new brands, it's you build a base of a brand's recognition to, to be recognized as a brand, and you start to build on it just trying to catch what I think you think or I think is it's the best way to move and to where to position a certain So that's um, that's a way to do. So as I said, as you mentioned, it's impossible to predict. And then we look to too much into these studies, you know. Um, I never had much time actually even to, to really read those things. You know? Sometimes yeah, they, they call them so trend dramatic. reports, and they're yeah, so they're such junk. And they have these big names on them by these professional, you know, uh, accounting firms and research companies, whatever they call themselves these days. And it, people spend huge amounts of money on them, and they look great. But once you read them, you're like. You're literally educating me on nothing. This isn't very intelligent, and frankly, most of it's wrong. You know, anything that's predictive is just wrong. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. So, really, it's all about you, yourself, your sensitivity, your professionality, your experience. That helps more than any any research, uh, you know. So, but you also you have a uh, this sort of you know uh, like a connoisseur. You have a taste for fine watches, just as somebody might develop a good taste for a wine or some food or art, you know, the, the long experience you've had with it has given you a mastery. And what you can do is probably make something beautiful in any theme. And so you can say, I don't know if this theme is going to be popular this season, but if it is, this is a really good way to celebrate it. Yeah, you know, it's true. It's uh, as you said. It's you develop your own kind of serve. Your your professional your experience it really helps a lot to understand uh, what to do. You know, it's all about sensibility, designer sensibility. And this is why it's so precious. You know, when you learn that, you know how to manage and how to uh, transfer. Well, you know, your idea or brands into this great product, that's, uh, that's part of uh, your own uh, experience in your sensitivity. You need a lot of experience to do watch. I mean, it's, it's all, even in other designs, I've been working on other products, it's all about experience. But I have to say, in watches, even more. This is such a small <laughs> thing, it needs, you know, a refinement to refine the product. Sometimes it's just a matter of the little small details really change completely the look of the other watch. So that's uh, that's a key. Yeah, we had that experience together. Remember, we were mm-hmm. we were we were talking about the the little exposed ruby. Yeah, exactly. On the dial, and did, yeah, yeah. I, I, which on the watch we'll talk about. But did you see? I think I sent it to you. There was a, co- a company that copied it. Yeah, like mul- like multiple companies copied it, and I was like. There's this funny thing that we created. We just sort of came up with out of the blue, and now it's being copied. And I guess the question is, what do you feel as a designer when when you see people copying your work? Does it upset you? Do you not really care? No, it doesn't upset. No, no. Actually, it's good. It means that it's a good, it's a good idea. No, but it happens <laughs> actually. It happened actually a few times. Actually, there's a company in China that actually called made a product out of my, with, with my name, just Giorgio. So, and they were talking about <laughs> my watch. And I, I was talking about like in the, in the 90s, so a long time ago. 
Uh, if you look even actually going to the S1, as we discussed, you know, the cutout case, which now has become quite popular, in it, I actually designed in 1996 for the first time on, on an Nautica. Oh, really? Yeah, 96. I have actually the proof because we launched it, and so it's, it was on the market. And so many collectors actually, there's one on Instagram that is um, uh, mentioned a few times, and it took a lot of pictures of it, and I'll send you the link. Uh, so that, that thing is being copied quite a lot. I feel actually quite proud that it's part of S1, which was, you know, the original idea to take what I, you know, I thought it was a, way, a waste, that we wasted a little bit, you know, the fact that we didn't develop or expand into our brand. So I said, you know, that was fun from my experience. I think I really still like it. And it's, so that was the reason of uh, the, that part of the design of this one, which... Uh, so what, what was it like, the discussion at Timex, to say, you're going to come out with a watch that sort of has my name? I have, it says Timex on it, but to have your name on it, was that an easy discussion? Was it their suggestion? Because that just normally doesn't happen. Yeah, that doesn't happen that, e- that easy. That's part of our, my relationship with Timex and, and Trust. So, and, you know, the CEO of the company... Uh, I think he's, uh, he has understand very well, you know, the, the product products, and so we, it was a very easy discussion, and he was on board immediately. He actually suggested let's do something that has uh, this different from Timex. So it's not a user product. Let's see. And so when I say, you know, like, yeah, great, I like to have my name on it. He said, yeah, fantastic. So it's uh, open immediately. They were not even a discussion. And that's incredible because uh, it, it's not doesn't happen all the time, and uh, the trust uh, we see from Tobias, uh, Tobias Reichmid, the CEO of the, of the company, I think is right. uh, incredible. I really appreciate that. that big, uh, is it the most expensive watch Timex ever had, or just currently had when it was released? Released? <laughs> uh, no, I think we had similar price point. And, Past, but yeah, it's, let's say it's the most expensive one right now. Uh, and the fact to combine, you know, the Times DNA, I don't think I could have done like $1,000 uh, watch. We'll have actually something coming soon that would be more expensive, but it's actually called a cola. Um, but combine the Times DNA into something a little bit more sophisticated, that was the, the key, you know, the difficult part. So I could have done, you know, even more around that watch that could have made even more, let's say, uh, sophisticated, but then that would exceed the price point. So it was the balance, to keep balance uh, of it, it was the key, the difficult part, to make something special but at the right price. I know it's higher than any other Timex, and we got a lot of critics from some of the uh, customers, but in general, it's been really well appreciated. So we saw that. the new one that is coming actually uh, in November. will have also Safari Glass. So oh. in So really, yeah, it, I, I find a different solution in terms of the design it that keeps the same price point but has a Safari Glass, and that's great. So let's talk about feedback. And as a designer, I think it's important to talk about. You know, you talked about ego when you started your career. 
other than market um, feedback and you know maybe some opinions of friends and colleagues. You probably didn't get that much feedback. Now, on the internet, every designer has all the feedback they could ever hope for, and then some. Do you do you look at people's feedback? Do you ignore it? Do you, do you feel a certain way about it? Is it is it an emotional experience? Do you laugh at it? <laughs> Yeah, no, okay. I start to read some of them and then I say, hey, you know what? I don't, I'm not going to read them anymore. <laughs> it's just uh, it's sometimes annoying, sometimes rewarding. You know, it's a, there is a lot of appreciation of things. Um, I find, you know, social media it's a great freedom, but at the same time, it, it, it reduces the freedom. You know, there is so much critics, so much, so, there's so much, so many experts. About everything that it's, uh, it, it became nonsense at one point, you know, to listen yeah. to everything, everyone. So I'm trying not to look too much to what, you know, what it says. Trying to see, oh, this capture, you know, the essence of it. And, uh, you know, I, I think I have enough experience in, a, in the industry to understand what's, what is good, what is not good for a product or a brand. Uh, you know, as someone coming from nowhere, Criticizing it, you know, yeah, sometimes it's fine, sometimes it's over the edge, so I don't care, honestly. I, I, yeah. I think it's a healthy attitude. I think what I, you know, should say to everyone, I don't believe the people who comments are being spoken about should ever look at it. It's a private conversation, which just unfortunately happens to be public. It's sort of for the audience only. It's It's almost as though there were people talking about you know, actors and actresses on stage, um, those people shouldn't be heard by the actors. Yes, they can. The, the fans can speak amongst themselves. The audience is free to have a discussion. But in the world of social media, it's sort of like the, the, the performers have to hear it. And that's a very strange situation to be in. And I don't think it's, it's healthy. I don't think it helps art. I think that the personal charisma of the artist thinking that they're doing a good job is, is all the motivation they need. Of course, they need some feedback, but they don't need to hear everybody's opinion all the time. It doesn't do anybody any good because you can't please anyone at the end of the day anyways. Yeah, no, exactly. You can't please everyone. And I think there is an history behind it. See the product that cannot, you know, doesn't need to be understood by everyone. So and sometimes you really look at things in a different way. So that's why, as you say, as I said, I would tell you too much. What's the most expensive watch you've ever designed? It's probably for a different brand and things like that. But what's like, you know, do you remember the most expensive watch? I remember I designed one for, um, I don't remember. Well, it was actually over a um, It was a special, uh, special watch I actually designed with this friend of mine, which actually passed away uh, a few years ago, which is my mentor in terms of watch design. Oh, and sorry to hear that. Uh, at that time, yeah, yeah, it was fantastic. Florence Francis it was the head of uh, Movado design at that time, and then uh, Concorde. So I think we worked on Concorde uh, product years, years ago. I mean, talking about like 15 years ago. And, and that, that was, that was the most expensive one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then we had some Versace, which they went over... 100,000, 150,000, you know, so to be young, it was 150,000, something like that. So it was quite exciting. But you know what? It's, it's more difficult to work on uh, inexpensive watches than uh, very expensive watches. Yeah, you know, it's funny because 
people don't necessarily realize that they think that there's this glory in having like a million dollar watch, but those are made in such small quantities. That's not hard. It's, you know, the, the, the Bauhaus movement sort of proved to designers that if you really want a good challenge. It's make something beautiful cheaply that can be made in high volumes, you know, exactly. and, and that's, that's the pinnacle, you know, and you ask a designer, I'm, I'm guessing you can tell me, what would you rather have the world's most expensive of something or something that more people in the world are wearing than anything else. And I think it's that the, the volume, the popularity, which is probably more appealing, right? Yeah, as a designer, yes. As an owner, probably like the more expensive one to own. <laughs> but as a designer, definitely it's more rewarding to to design something, you know, for uh, for you know, more as much people as possible. That's actually why I loved actually Timex from the beginning. Timex has that DNA, and that was very difficult at the beginning to really, you know, adapt. To that, it provides something that was really good and good for the brand. So I needed some time, and actually, it took a little while to understand how to carve a new identity, but keeping the same same DNA. So, and that's why I think that's a, a very successful. You know, we did it we did quite well in terms of bring back the brand to shine some shine, you know, to what deserve, you know. So. In spite of some critics you get always on the social media, sometimes when people don't understand uh, you know, the path. But besides that, I think it was uh, very successful. I really enjoyed it. And I wish, actually, honestly speaking, I could focus even more on Tannis brand rather than the 11 brand we have right now in the lab. So, well, well someday, but you job. still have to do 11. That, that's the thing. There's actually more watch brands than there are watch designers. I don't think many people realize this, but not every watch brand, in fact, most, don't really have a main in-house designer. They're mostly uh, production companies, if anything. So mm. people like you are in high demand, right? Um, yeah, no, no, definitely in high demand. No, and I think um, there are, I find difficulty to find actually designer to work with me and looking actually some uh, some oh new somebody designers. needs to be Giorgio's apprentice. Yeah yeah I love I mean I would love to actually to get more designers to train. You know we have so much work right now that the new brands coming that I really need that. but it's difficult thing it's not just to find a designer that has a uh, a good sense of design but also a good sense of vision. Because once you know you design good product then in the next one and then the next one and the next one. So that kind of you know, we should do that as in a blog to watch giveaway, the fight to become Giorgio's apprentice. Because look, there's a lot of designers that would love to design watches. Not everyone can get this, but they can compete, and the best one can have a chance of being Giorgio's apprentice. Yeah, would be nice. Okay, I think it would be a great challenge. We'll plan it out. We'll have to think about you. We'll have <laughs> yeah. to judge them. There's going to be a lot of you judging them. Are you are you ready to judge them? Yeah, yeah, but you know what the thing is, you, I find some good designers that come with good product, good idea, and the, the you know, long terms, then it's become difficult, you know, because then you, you really need to understand the brand, and that's difficult parts. I find in this in young designers, they don't really look into the brand; they just look into the product, and that's good for one yeah. or two. But then you know it doesn't work. You know that's that kind of uh, understanding, and you know look to into the brand and see and create a vision for the brand. That's different. 
Well, I, I think what's funny is, you know, I see this a lot. A designer comes in and loves a brand, is is infatuated with the brand. And let's just use like Louis Vuitton. It's a luxury brand everyone knows. Yeah. They go in there and they say, this is the Louis Vuitton watch I would make. And what they should be doing is saying, I wonder what the next Louis Vuitton watch should be. Those are two completely different questions with different answers. And it's the latter one, which a mature designer knows how to ask. The more, you know, I guess you could say entrepreneurial newer ones they are in, they're thinking about starting their own brand. And you either start your own brand and come up with your own original designs, which you can do, it's risky, but do it. Yeah. Or you work at a brand and you spend time nuancing and massaging their designs with a little bit of your flavor, but you really don't, don't own the designs. You're, you're adapting, you're curating. Yeah, exactly. No, no, that, that's the key. You know? So the, that's the way my, my job you know, should provide the that kind of service. So, and it's not easy to find the correct, uh, the right person that can actually help you on this. And so, I'm trying to. I have to actually do have actually good collaborators and good designers that help me on that. Okay, for, we're still going to do Giorgio's Apprentice. Okay, la yeah, yeah. last last question, and we're going to do a little bit of sci-fi because I know you know how to design a wonderful classic watch. But let's do a little science fiction. What? What does your dream watch look like? How is it made? What materials are, are, are part of it? Does it have any special features? Let's, let's just hear about, you know, again, you have all the technology available to you. What are some things that would go in Giorgio's dream watches? That's a very difficult question, I have to say. Of course, that's <laughs> why it's fun. No, no, I know it's fun. Uh, uh, actually, I'm working on S2, so that's... Uh, and I, and I went through several ideas I had uh, in my mind that uh, that I so I could develop for for the S two. So I don't think I have actually dream watch to be honest with you. That should be. Uh, I think still you know that is also part of the process of yourself as a designer and looking at you know what what's happening to bring something that fits you know, correctly the, the market and, and yourself. So and that changed constantly. So um, the fact that it's uh, it's in one way today, which could be in another way the other day. And that's, and actually the S1 in some, in some way has been a little more difficult part of developing because I didn't want to do something that was getting more with <laughs> in the short times, which happens most of the time to everything I do. So that my dream watch would be something that I incorporate all the best, of course, the materials, but still something that will, I will not get bored in the short terms. Um, what, what gets you bored? What bores you? Uh, I don't know, everything, you know, just uh, the way it looks <laughs> uh, or the way it sits on your wrist, uh, so many things, you know. That's, so you, need that's to be, you, you need something that flirts with you on the wrist all the time. That's, that's what excites you. Yeah, that stays on my wrist the longest as possible. I should say this one stays quite long. You know, it's a it's now. a great watch. I look forward to uh, seeing more of them. Uh, we're we're out of time, everyone. My guest has been Mr. Giorgio Gali. He is the design director of Timex, um, a fantastic designer. Uh, he's responsible for a lot of different brands. Giorgio, thank you so much for being my guest on this episode of Superlative. Thank you, Ari. It was a great pleasure always talking to you. Thanks, Giorgio. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, 
please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?